All right, you've been standing a long time, so it should feel good to sit down for a few minutes now. Uh, we try to guide people when they first get saved on how to get into the Word of God and start reading. And I think one of the biggest challenges, as we've talked many times to you guys about here at Cornerstone, is just teaching everyone how to read the Bible, uh, how to understand the big story that's happening. But biblical story can be told in about six movements. Uh, in other words, six major scenes frame the entire biblical story. And if someone would just explain to you what the six scenes are, you pretty much can understand then whenever you read your Bible, oh, I'm in scene number two now, and this is what's happening in this big part of the story. Uh, because you also have to locate where you are in the story so you know how to live your life and what, what, how, how Christianity makes sense because the Christianity that you guys are living Right now, on this side of the cross, in this modern era, your Christianity looks very different than what you're reading about in the Old Testament. Very different. So, how do you sort that out? Uh, there are Christians, you'll run into them. I was raised in a tradition of Christians that really confused us about, are we supposed to be trying to follow the rules of the Old Testament or not? And then they would say, well, no, you're not. But then they would enforce certain rules of the Old Testament on us, which never made any sense. So let me see if I can explain. We're all going to just kind of zoom out here. And rather than look at one little text, I want you to look at big parts of the story. The reason we try to guide you in how to read the Bible, because if you were to go to the fifth book of your Bible... <clears throat> And you were just to open the fifth book of your Bible and start reading, it, it would be kind of scary for you. Uh, it would be confusing for you. If you were to read in Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 29 and just start reading about the conversation that God's having with his people, you would be confused about the character of God. In other words, if you just cracked open your Bible for the first time and said, I'm going to put my finger down and start reading, and you landed on certain texts like Deuteronomy 28 and 29, you would think, wow, God is this angry God who demands that everybody keep this big list of rules. And if you cross the line, man, he is going to be on you and he is going to judge you and punish you. And you would come away <clears throat> with a very skewed understanding of God because you just opened to a scene that's not your scene and jumped right into the middle of it. And you don't know all that's been said around that scene already. You don't know the conversations that have already happened. And so you would misunderstand God. You would misunderstand what your relationship with God is supposed to look like and what it's based upon. We call this having context or not having context. Without context, you see God as angry. <clears throat> as a matter of fact, when you see the rules, you're going to say being a Christian is impossible. I mean, if you have to keep that, all these rules... In order for God to approve of your life, there's no way I can keep this long list of rules. Matter of fact, throw ten commandments at us. We can't even keep ten. Much less six hundred and something. You see what I'm saying? And so, there, whenever we are faced with a list of rules, we have a problem. Because you know you can't keep the list of rules that, that you're being confronted with. So, let me zoom out and let me frame this all up for you. The biblical story is not complicated. As long as you can understand the different movements. We call those movements covenants. The framework of the Bible is built around a series of covenants. It's a covenant with Adam. It's a covenant with Noah. There's a covenant with Abraham. Abram. God calls his people right there. The covenant's renewed in Moses. The covenant's renewed with David, the king, the monarchy that's coming in a few months now. We'll talk maybe about the kings. And then the new covenant comes in Jesus Christ, new creation, resurrection. You're living in this covenant, okay? You're in the last covenant. You're in the new covenant. You're not in these covenants. Your speaking lines are not over here. The part you're supposed to play out in the story of your life is not found in these old covenants of Noah and Abraham, you're in the new covenant. But we need to go look at these because we learn about how God worked. We learn about God's people. 
And we learn about how the biblical story makes sense in its entirety. So, I've already told you, Abraham's probably the main character. If you want to say he is the main character of the book of Genesis. Moses, then, is the main character of the next books of your Bible. Exodus, for sure. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then you'll see in a minute, torches passed to Joshua, Judges, the monarchy. So I'm just framing the big story for you. Let me give you the backstory first. Your Bible, the biblical narrative, begins, Genesis 1, <clears throat> with a creator God who is the maker of our world and our universe. At the end of the creative process, mankind is created, and mankind is the crowning achievement of the handiwork of God. Ladies and gentlemen, you are the creative genius of a holy God. You are the highest thing He has created here on earth. And you're a miracle of God's creative power. And He put the humans here on His planet, made in the image of our Creator, and we were given a special task to be this king-priest vocation here on planet earth. We are to rule in God's stead, reflecting God to the world like an angled mirror, and we are to reflect the world's worship and praise back to God. We are called kings and priests, and this is our holy vocation. But here's how the story goes. The first humans rebelled against God, and they broke the covenant. And as a result of their sin and their rebellion against God, the results were chaos and death now invade planet Earth and infect the creation at every level. Civilization, after Genesis 3, begins to spiral downhill for ten generations, which is recorded in Genesis chapter number 5. And after ten generations of disastrous humanity, after ten generations, there is a divine intervention. God says, enough. Earth needs an intervention, and I'm now stepping in again to intervene. And God steps in to intervene, and He judges wicked humanity and does a complete reboot, a, a complete restart of the human project with a man named Noah and his family. And after the floodwaters dissipate, God enters into a new covenant with Noah's family, the only family, and resets uh, the system but the reset doesn't work it doesn't hold after 10 generations after the flood the next 10 generations humanity has spiraled downhill yet again and the descendants of Noah after the flood rebelled just like the first family against the 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 lordship of God and the humans gather in rebellion at a place called Babel the tower of Babel near old ancient Babylon and the humans say, we're going to do whatever we want to do. And God, you're not going to tell us what to do. And God says, wow, here we go again. And so God judges them and scatters them and confounds the language. And we've read all about that. So God makes another start. He says, okay, I promised I would never judge the world again like I did with Noah. So here's what I'm going to do. Since there is no God's people, since God doesn't have any people... And since God created people to be God's people, and since I'm the creator of the universe and of planet Earth, I want a people. This was the design from the beginning. So since no nations follow me, I'll just make my own nation. How about that? You say, can he do that? Watch him. Just watch him. This is what, uh, what the book of Genesis is all about. And he said, I'm going to make my nation different from the other nations. And so God calls a Gentile man from a family of idolaters. And let me just say it in modern covenant language. That man becomes a follower of God, believes on God. His faith is credited to him for righteousness. And God says, get away from your people to a land that I'm going to give you, which we know is Israel now, the, the promised land. Go, go to this land, and I'm going to guide you. And my covenant is this, I'm going to be with you. And your children are going to be like the sand of the sea and like the stars of the people. I'm going to make a covenant with you. A covenant is this super, super serious, solemn uh, agreement. Okay? I'm going to make a covenant with you. And God's people, from here to the rest of the story, regardless of what movement you're in, 
God's people are covenant people. Now, if you'll hold on to that, you'll have something in your heart this morning. God's people are always covenant people. Just which covenant are you in, okay? They were in this old Abrahamic covenant. And and God said, okay, uh, there's going to be, the covenant has a sign. And I want you to circumcise all of the males. And that'll be the sign of the covenant. Now, circumcision predates Abraham. The ancient Egyptians circumcised those who would be Pharaoh, royalty. And they called them the sons of God when they circumcised them. Just hold on to that. Circumcision was not invented by the Jews with Abraham. It was already a societal thing. And God said, my people are going to be the sons of God. Every male will be circumcised. Everyone will be a king and a priest in my new covenant. And God wanted his nation to spotlight uh, what God was all about. And so God put his nation, he said, I could put you anywhere on planet earth since I own it all, but here's the promised land I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the land bridge, known as the Middle East, that connects three continents. All the ancient superpowers of the old world, Babylon, Persians, uh, Egyptians, Romans, Greeks, any ancient power had access to the other continents through one piece of land, and that's the land God chose to put His people there. Like a beacon of shining light in the middle of a dark world, connecting three continents, connecting every trade route from Asia and Africa and Europe. God said, I'm going to put my special people right here in my special place, located geographically on a parcel of land that is special because it connects All of these nations of the world. And from your strategic position, I want my people to show the world how to treat your fellow man. From that position, I want you to show the world. You reflect God to them and show them who God is. Show them the love of God. Show them the holiness of God. Show them how to be stewards of the earth's resources. Show them how to work hard and rest. Show them how to treat your fellow man in a truly human way. And although all of God's people, we're talking about Israel now, Abraham's kids, although they all had the mark of God in their flesh, they did, all, they, they did not all have hearts for God. Though they could say, see, we have the mark of God, we're God's people. Not everybody had a heart for God. And this was Jesus' kind of condemnation to his own fellow Jews. Not everyone who circumcises God's people. This was to be the language of the New Testament. Not everybody who has the mark of God has a heart for God. And what God always wanted from the beginning was a people who had a heart for God. Well, here's the story. Those people eventually become slaves in Egypt. There's this story now of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That's the story we've been telling here on Sunday morning for several weeks. Then the Bible transitions to the story of Moses. So for those of you that weren't here the last week or so, let me just summarize it in a nutshell. Pharaoh commands the baby boys to be cast into the river Nile because God's people are multiplying too much and they're going to overtake all of Egypt, they're afraid. And so they enslave them and they start practicing infanticide, killing all the baby boys and throwing them into the river Nile. Moses' parents defied Pharaoh. They had what the Hebrew writers called courageous faith. They said, we will not obey the edict of the king because this crosses a line. We will not murder our baby boy. And so they hit him, the mother hit him, Jochebed, as long as she could. And when the little baby began to find his voice, and that happens after a little bit, and they're very hard to keep hidden in secret and away from the eyes of the... Eventually she said, okay, now we've got to take some drastic action. And she put the little baby in a boat, made a little boat, called an ark, little boat, and put the baby in the little boat and set the little boat adrift on the Nile River and turned little Moses into the hands of God and said, God... You have to be in control. You've got him. Whatever happens now, God, you've got him. I cannot hide him any longer. And God stirred the currents of the River Nile and blew a gentle breeze and drifted that little boat right up to a little landing where Pharaoh's daughter was bathing in the River Nile as an act of fertility, praying to the Nile River God to give her a child as she washed. And sure enough, 
the gods dropped a child, in her thinking is what I'm saying, right up to her doorstep. She opens the little basket, and what's the first thing you do when you have a baby? Gender reveal. The era of no sonogram. So now it's gender reveal moment. They've got the pink balloons and the blue balloons, and they're all ready to go. And they pull back the little cover in the, in the, little, in the basket boat that he's in. And not only is he a boy, he's a circumcised boy, which means he's a son of God. Only the princes of Egypt were circumcised. She's a princess of Egypt. God just sent me the next Pharaoh. Look at that. How cool is that? And so she takes her little baby Moses, and you know the story I told last week where the mother becomes, the real mother, birth mother becomes the nanny, uh, the wet nurse to baby Moses. And then Moses, there comes a time when you fast forward the story that Moses is a grown man. He's a general in the army of Egypt. He's a prince in line for the throne. He comes to an understanding along the way. It's not totally clear, but he comes to a clear understanding that he is Hebrew and not Egyptian. And he has a point in his life where as a grown man, his parents are not, the faith of your parents is awesome, but at some point you have to own your own faith. And that's the story we've been telling here. We have a young church. The average age here is 30 or less. You are a group of young uh, men and women. You need to own your own faith. The faith of your parents is great for them, and it was great to influence you, but now take ownership and say, this is my faith, this is what I believe, I have decisions to make. And Moses came to that moment in his own life, and he has to choose. Let me read Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose, those are the important words, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt. In short, Moses the man has to make his own choices. And here's the short version of Moses' story. He chose God. That's the story I want to tell about every one of you. That's the story I want to tell about every one of our 19, 20, 21, 22, 23-year-old children that are becoming adults now. You want to be able to, as a parent, look back and say, my own son, my own daughter chooses God for themselves. You're a successful parent right there. You say, well, they're in a rebellious stage. Keep the door open and never give up. And we're going to keep praying. And they're going to own their own faith at some point in their story. So now Moses, you know the story, he goes out in the wilderness, he's a shepherd now for a while, he and God are going to have an encounter, and it's Moses who becomes the deliverer of these slaves of Israel, and Moses is the one who writes Genesis as the backstory. The story I'm telling you now is Exodus, the Exodus of Egypt. But Moses writes Genesis so that the people of God understand where they came from and how they got to be slaves. They got to be slaves through these other movements of history, these other covenants, Adam, Noah, Abraham, to here. Here's how we got here, and here's who you are. You are God's people. It's important to know your story. Knowing your story is an empowering thing. Imagine Moses. I imagine that Moses was told he was an Egyptian for most of his life. And he comes to a place somewhere where he understands he's been told a false story all his life. And he realizes, I'm not an Egyptian after all. You know how that would shake you up, right? You know how you'd, like, you'd find out your father's not really your father or your mother's not really your mother and nothing's as it seems. And, and what have I been living this whole time? I'm so confused. I've got to sort this out. Who am I? And, and, and what is God's purpose for my life? Uh, and I would say this about raising young adults. Don't stop being a parent when your kids get to be 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. They still need you. They're figuring out who they are. They're figuring out how to own their own. They're figuring out what God's plan is for your life. Stay influential in their lives. Moses now is telling the story so Israel knows their story, so they're empowered no doubt he felt the pain of not knowing his story all his life. And knowing your story can change your life. He was not destined to be Pharaoh of Egypt. 
he was destined to be called of God, to be the deliverer and leader of God's people. Which one is a higher calling? <laughs> well, it depends on what your worldview is, isn't it? That's why the writer of Hebrews said Moses chose to suffer with God's people than to have the throne of Egypt. Most people in this world who have a different worldview would say, I'd take the throne of Egypt, I'll take the followers, I'll take the popularity, I'll take the the treasure, and I'll take the privileged and comfortable life over this other life of being leader of a bunch of slaves. But that was his calling, and that was his destiny, and he found his place in the story that God is telling. Now Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, drop dead. I don't know your God. And Moses, you're, you're, you've already been disgraced. Get out of here. You're not really Egyptian. You're Hebrew. We all know now. Run away. We don't listen to you. We don't listen to your God. And Moses said, it's going to be bad news for you, Pharaoh, if you act this way because God's going to judge Egypt because you won't let his people go. So here come the ten plagues. Boom, boom. They're all attacks against the Egyptian gods, as I explained last Sunday, if you want to go back in and hear that. And the ten plagues culminate with the night of say it yes so that just makes me feel like you okay i won last week okay because that was all about passover and and you know what passover is now right passover is where god said here's the last plague and this one will break the back of egypt i'm going to let the death angel come through and kill all the firstborn tonight put the blood on the door if you're in the house you're safe i'll tell more about that story and how it links to other stories in the Bible in the coming weeks. The Jews are liberated. Moses leads them out now of Egypt and takes them to Mount Sinai, which is what God told him to do at the burning bush, bring them back to me here at Sinai, come and worship me. And when you get the people back to Mount Sinai, I'm going to renew, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. And this is the story I've just told you in in five minutes the entire summary of Exodus chapters 1 through 18. Now we're at Sinai, and God's about to make a new covenant with his newly freed people, a whole nation, a whole army, a whole beautiful people, and God says, okay, now we're going to make a covenant. This is Exodus 19 through 24, okay? So we're getting ready for the end of the book of Exodus. Now this is what you know as the Mosaic covenant. You may also hear this called the Sinai Covenant. If you hear Mosaic Covenant or Sinai Covenant, synonyms mean the same thing. It's happening at Mount Sinai. Some people call it Sinai. But it's Moses leading the people, so some people call it Mosaic Covenant. Here's what it sounds like. Exodus 19, verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, Mount Sinai, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. That sounds cool, doesn't it? How would you like to be God's treasured possession? That's what he's calling his people now. You will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. That's my message. You go down and tell those, my people my message. So Moses went back, verse 7, and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. Do you see how this is a two-party covenant happening? God says, I want to make you, uh, although I own the whole earth, I want to make you my treasured possession. My people will be my special nation, and I, I want you to be those people. And the people said, then we will do all that you say we are to do. Okay, that's cool. So now what we call the law in Scripture is really not a law code like you would think of a modern law code today. You know, like you you speed, and then here's the fine. It's not a law code like that. When we look at the Bible and we say, well, that's the law of the Old Testament, the term law in the Bible is really describing the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. So God says, here's some rules. I want you to be my people. You'll have to keep these rules. Do you want to do it? And they said, absolutely. That's exactly what we want to do. 
So the law are the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. Exodus 24, let me read. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. And he got up early the next morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and they set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls. Now this is going to be freaky, so hold on. And the other half of the blood he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant. He had just written down every, all the rules God had told him. And he read it to the people. And they responded. Are you seeing these words on the screen? We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, that's totally freaky to us. They, they, they kill an animal, they got the blood, make a sacrifice, and he splashes blood on the altar, and he splashes blood on the people, and you're like, what in the world's going on? It's a covenant ceremony. And the same thing happened when God made a covenant with Abraham. They made a sacrifice, and the two parties passed between the altar, between the divided pieces, and there is blood involved. It's called cutting a covenant. Blood is usually shed at a covenant moment. And there's symbolism to this. I don't want to go off into a deep thing. I've got a whole sermon on this. You can listen to later. But the covenant is a serious, serious commitment ceremony. And the symbolism says, if you don't keep the rules, you see what happened to this sacrifice, that's probably going to happen to you. It's serious, okay? It has offerings involved, and the two parties are making a solemn promise. The most similar ceremony we have to this in our culture is a wedding ceremony. Now, the bride would be highly offended if I, the pastor, splashed blood on her beautiful white wedding dress. So that part of it we don't do. We don't kill anything. At a, at a, you know, nothing dies, hopefully, at a wedding ceremony. Uh, but the closest thing we have to this, this is not your culture. This is what I'm saying. You don't do this. In other words, when you're making business deals and when we're doing peace treaties, we don't, we don't kill an animal and walk between the pieces and sprinkle. It's just not our thing. That's, that's old world stuff that we don't do. The closest thing we have to this in our culture is a wedding ceremony where two people, unrelated by blood, are now joined through a covenant and they become closer through the covenant than their other blood kin. In other words, you're, you're not blood kin with someone, hopefully, that you're marrying. Although in the Bible, uh, it's a whole other story. Or from Arkansas, either way. But you're, you're, not, you're not blood kin and you enter into a covenant and you're now closer because of the covenant with your spouse than you are with the rest of your blood kin, right? Therefore, you shall leave your father and mother and cling to your, your husband and your wife, and they shall be one flesh, and you're going to separate from your blood kin. That's the Bible kind of model on that. So uh, the closest thing we have that you can understand this is a, is a wedding ceremony. Now, here's what's wild. Israel is basically having a wedding ceremony with God. I, I want you to be my people and I want to be your God, and we're going to seal it with a covenant. Will you keep the covenant? And the people responded how? Yes, we will keep all the words that you have spoken. Okay? Here's what's wild. Moses goes up the mountain to talk to God, and while Moses is up the mountain writing down the words of the God, the people are already down the mountain breaking the covenant that they just entered into by worshiping the golden calf. It literally took five minutes for them to break the covenant rules that they had just agreed to. Now, in literature, and the Bible is literature, you call this foreshadowing or foreboding. This, we're breaking the covenant five minutes after we make it, is foreboding. It's foreshadowing of what's to come for the entire rest of your Old Testament, okay? The covenant people are going to break the covenant to smithereens continually and drive God bananas, okay? So does he hate them? No, he loves them. But they're going to drive him crazy by constantly breaking the covenant rules. And every covenant has a sign. For Abraham's, it was circumcision. For the Mosaic, the, the Sabbath sign. Uh, Sabbath is the covenant sign. So connected to the Mosaic covenant is this sign that we're going to show the world that we keep the Sabbath. 
And by keeping the Sabbath, the world knows we're God's people. Let me read it. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign. That's how we know it's a sign. The Bible says it will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. On the seventh he rested and was refreshed. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him two tablets of the covenant law, tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. That's really cool. Now here's the story. All of the nations of the world work seven days a week. That's the norm. Okay? God builds a new people, a new nation called Israel, and he's going to ask Israel to only work six days a week. He says, I'm going to make you a prosperous people, and you're going to go a different way than the world goes. You're going to follow the Chick-fil-A model. How successful do you think they're being with their model right now? Anybody waiting in these long lines wrapped around the building, two locations not even a mile apart, and you still have a... Yeah, looks like they're doing pretty good on a six-day model to me. And so God put his people on the Chick-fil-A model, and the ancient world thought they were crazy. Because the ancient world was like, why are you people staying home and resting? There's money to be made. Why? We're getting near, we're near the weekend. This is prime time shopping and spending. And, and this is when you go to market. And God's people said, no, we are commanded to you sundown on Friday to, to sundown on, on Saturday. This is the Sabbath. And we're to keep this. It, we're in a covenant with God. And that feature of national life in Israel made them unique among all Nations. Now, the, the terms of the covenant, the, these rules or laws, they teach us about God. But I want you to know this clearly this morning, those rules do not apply to you. You're not under the Mosaic covenant. You're not Hebrews. You're not living in 1400 B.C. You're not under the Mosaic covenant. You're under something much, much better. So all the Jews were to keep the Sabbath. And the Sabbath, the sign of the Mosaic Covenant and circumcision, the sign of the Abrahamic Covenant, become an incredible source of confusion for the New Testament church living under the New Covenant. When you get to the New Testament, this becomes, the word circumcision is found as much as grace because the church is confused. They're over here now in a New Covenant and they're saying, but wait, don't we have to be circumcised? You know what Paul's answer and Jesus' answer and the answer is in the New Testament, no, you don't. You're under a different covenant. They look backwards and say, yeah, but don't we have to worship on, you don't we have to keep the Sabbath, Friday night, Saturday night? What's the answer in the New Testament? No, you don't. You're under a different covenant. And, and so you'll see the Lord's Day start being called Sunday, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, and you'll see them start assembling on a different day. You're under a different covenant, that's why. And the covenant terms now are rehearsed so they wander in the wilderness zoom out with me reset everybody moses has the children of israel in the desert they're rebellious they won't go in and take the promised land so god says you're going to wander for 40 years after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness now we're getting ready to to do the next thing okay the covenant terms are rehearsed into the ears of the young adults like you all their parents have died in the wilderness and so they rehearse the covenant terms to the young generation like you. And they say, we want to be sure you guys know what you're getting into and what God wants you to do. You're young men and women. You're leading for a new generation. Don't be confused. And so to make sure everyone's got it, Deuteronomy restates the covenant terms. And Deuteronomy 28 and 29 are fascinating reading. If you want to read what those covenant terms look like, and if you've read that and it never made any sense to you, read it this week. Now it'll make sense because you understand where you are in the story. For example, Deuteronomy 29.9, carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything that you do. Let me read verse 16 onward. You yourselves know how we lived in Egypt, how we passed through the countries on the way here. You saw among them their detestable images of idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold. Make sure that there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you whose heart returns, turns away from the Lord to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there's no root among you that produces this bitter, such bitter poison idolatry is what they're talking about when such a person hears the words of this oath and they invoke the blessing on themselves thinking 
Yeah, I'll say I'm going to keep the covenant, but I don't really intend to keep the covenant. I will be safe even though I persist on going my way. They will be bringing disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. The Lord will never be willing to forgive them. His wrath and zeal will burn against them. All the curses written in the book will fall on them. And the Lord will blot out their names from under heaven. Well, that's a pretty heavy reading right there, isn't it? Kabam. That's what's going to happen. The Lord will single them out from all the tribes of Israel for their disaster according to the curses of the covenant that are written in the book. Now, do you understand why I say if you just started reading this, Without backstory, you'd be saying, oh, God is a very angry kind of guy, isn't he? No, he's not. The people have promised and promised and promised and promised and promised and promised that they will obey him. They have promised and promised and promised and promised that they will be loyal to him like a bride. They have promised and promised and promised that they want to be his special people and they want him to bless them and they want him to give them the land and they want God to do great things for them. This is just the other side of the story. If you don't, if you break the covenant now after all these promises you've made, maybe divorce is going to happen. <laughs> this is what this looks like. That term's even used in the Old Testament. God says, yeah, I'm just going to divorce them. They just won't be faithful to me. So now watch what happens. They rehearse the covenant. Now Moses passes the baton to Joshua. Moses dies just in sight of the promised land. It's in modern day Jordan. I've stood over on Mount Pisgah and looked back to Israel from the mountain. And you can see all of Israel. I mean, you see the Jordan Valley, the Dead Sea. You can see the mountains. And over those mountains is Jerusalem. And Moses, that was his last sight. Uh, he died right there on, on Mount Pisgah on the Jordan side of River Jordan and the Dead Sea. And Joshua brought the entire encampment down right there to the banks north of the Dead Sea uh, next year. If you want to go, that's a place we'll go and stand. We'll go and stand on the Israeli side of the border right where Joshua brought the people across. And you turn and there is Jericho right there on the mountain slope right in front of you. And you know what's about to happen in the story of Jericho then. So let me just say this. Moses hands the baton to Joshua. And I want to say to you, we are an incredibly young church. We do not have a lot of gray hair in this church. It's a young church. And I want to say to you young people, do not hold back in leading. Don't wait on old people to lead. You lead. You say, well, I'm just 20. Just lead. Just, be, just take, 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 find your own voice, find your own faith, and lead. If you're in your 30s, just lead. Just be, be a leader. Just own your faith, own the church of Jesus Christ, and be a leader. And, and I'm proud that you have done that. We have an incredible group of young adults here at this church, and you have owned leadership. We have incredibly young deacons we always have had here, incredibly young people leading on the staff. I showed you a few weeks ago what your future looks like. All these young people who are uh, leading your children this morning and leading the youth and leading all the ministries of the church. Uh, never, never despise them for their youth. They are incredibly dedicated uh, leaders here in the church. And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to let some old guy like me hand you the baton and you're supposed to take the baton and then you're supposed to run your race and I would say run it better than I did. When you get the baton of leadership in your hand, you'd be a better deacon than I was when I was a young 20-something deacon. When you get the baton in your hand, some of you, you lead this church better than I've ever led it. You lead your small group better than I've led mine. You make more disciples. You do it. You can do it. You have the same God I have. You have the same Holy Spirit in your heart that I have in my heart. You take the reins of leadership, ladies and gentlemen, and you lead to where God is leading this church. You take the faith of your parents, you take the faith of your spiritual mentors, and you take it to a whole new reality. This is the story of the Bible. Moses could only go so far with this. And he went as far as he could go, and God said, your lines in my story are about to stop. This is your last scene. Hand the baton, put your hand on Joshua, and tell the nation he's the new leader and I'm going to take you to heaven, and I'm going to take Joshua to the promised land. That's you. You're Joshua. You just own that and say, God, you take me wherever you want to take me. So here's what happens in the biblical story. Joshua led that generation to conquer the land of Canaan and to take it for a possession. 
And then as Joshua becomes old, now we're really fast forward in the story. Now Joshua, it's his whole life. Sorry, we're done. We'll pick that up later. Now Joshua is an old man. And they, they, they own now the, the, the land grant. They own Israel. They own the land. They, they've taken it by, by force. And as Joshua gets old, now he's about to pass the baton. Watch what Joshua said. This is discipleship. Moses discipled Joshua for 40 years in handing the baton. Now Joshua's led the nation. Now he's going to hand the baton to a new generation of leaders. Listen to what he does. He does exactly what his mentor did. Joshua 23, 6. Be very strong. That's what he tells his young people. Be very strong to obey and very careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them nor bow down to them. You are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done until now. Verse number 11. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. I think I could apply that right to you this morning. Be very careful to guard your heart and make sure that your love is fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Joshua says these words, If you forsake the Lord, if you serve foreign gods, God will turn and bring disaster on you, and He will make an end of you after He has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, Oh no, we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen to serve the Lord. They said, Yes, we are witnesses. 23, Now then, said Joshua, Throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey him. And on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. They're renewing their vows. They're renewing the Mosaic covenant. It's not an entirely new covenant. It's a new generation. And it's like being at Sinai again, except now they're standing at the River Jordan looking into the promised land, or now they're on the other side of the promised land, and he's saying, now renew your vows to God. I just put that out there to say this to you. Maybe that's what you are here for this morning. You're hearing the story. You're seeing how God dealt with his people. And God's Holy Spirit is tugging at your heart this morning and saying, you know what, maybe you need to refresh your commitment. Maybe you need to renew your vows to the Lord. Yes, you, you said yes to Jesus a long time ago. You accepted him as your Savior and King. But there are times along the way when it's very appropriate to bow before your God and just say, God, I'd just like to renew myself before you today. I'd just like to, if I haven't told you lately, I love you, I do, I'm in this for all my life. Yes, I will obey you. I want to be your people. Now, this isn't your covenant, but you're in a different kind of covenant. And it's still a covenant of faith between you and God. All right, allow me two minutes, and I'm going to summarize the book of Judges and bring you to a conclusion with the monarchy. Here we go. What's about to happen when Joshua passes the baton to the young generation is you cross over in your Bible to the book of Judges, where we'll start in the month of April. And when you get into the book of Judges... It's different. Moses is gone and Joshua is gone and there's no big time leader like this. So in the book of Judges, it's a very dark time in Israel's history. The, Israel, uh, the nation of Israel is constantly breaking the covenant with God and it establishes a cycle that will hold pretty much for the rest of the Old Testament now. And the cycle will look just like this. Israel breaks the covenant and worships other gods. And when they do that, God uses foreign nations to discipline Israel. Foreign powers will come in and have conquest against Israel. And then Israel is called to repentance, usually by a prophet kind of figure, saying, go back and repent and do right. And then God raises up a hero to rescue Israel. This becomes a cycle throughout the rest of the Old Testament now. And when you say, well, what happens after God raises up a hero and rescues Israel? Everything goes fine for a while, and then Israel breaks the covenant, uses foreign nations, call it, and, then, and then what happens? And then we start over again, and that just goes and goes cyclically. And if you say, that's crazy, just look at your own country. We are in crazy cycles as well. We swing like a pendulum one way and the other way and the other way and the other way. It happens. It, it's part of human history. 
And that's what the book of Judges is all about. And wait till you see the heroes that God raises up, the men and women that God raises up to set things right in Israel. And these are some crazy characters you're going to see in the coming weeks. The last section then this morning I want to talk about is the monarchy. When this begins to, Judges begins to die out, then, then Israel says, you know what, every other nation has a king. Why don't we have a king? We want a king. I mean, if they have a king, we want a king, and they want it to be like the other nations. What Israel kept forgetting is God wanted the other nations to be like Israel. He didn't want Israel to be like the other nations. God wants you to be his people and to go colonize planet Earth for Jesus Christ and make the rest of the world like you. He doesn't want you to be like the rest of the world. That's God's modus operandi in the Scriptures. There's nothing wrong with a king per se, uh, but, but Israel's motive was wrong. They wanted a king because the world had a king. So they selected a king that was tall and handsome and, and, and on the outward looked like all the other, you know, stately, you know, presented himself in a certain way, kind of a kingly looking fixture, uh, uh, figure. And Saul had outward charisma, outward charm, but he did not have a heart for God. Now, can you imagine a disaster that's coming when God's people, the people of God, are led by a man who has no heart for God? Can anybody see how that could go wrong really quickly? And if it goes wrong, you've already heard all the warnings I've been reading to you. If you do this, then God will do this, and God will do this. And you're like, nobody really, I guess, thought through what would happen if you put the wrong guy on the throne of God's people. So God told Samuel the prophet, to go anoint another king. If you're going to have a king, you might as well have a king that I choose. And so God chose a young shepherd, and he had Samuel go anoint a youth named David. And here's what the story looks like, and we'll tell it in detail in the coming weeks. There's a big struggle between the old king and the new young king that's been anointed. And and God found in David this young man who loved God. And God found in David a young man who loved God's people and I want you to know this morning that these two things go together I hear a lot of Christians say well I love God I just don't like leading children I don't like kids I don't like kids or I I love God I don't really like old people or I love God but I don't like black people or brown people or Asian people or white people or brown people or yellow people or I love God but I don't really like Those things don't go together. Something's wrong with that. And some of that may be in you and me just because of our fallen nature. That's part of what you need to submit to the Holy Spirit and ask Him to smash. You need to say, God, whatever's in me that's not right, break it. Break it. I don't want to be that way. And and let's not repeat those type uh, type of patterns. God found a man named David who loved God and loved God's people he loved the sheep the people of God and God loved David so much and David loved God so much that God made another covenant with David and he said to David let me just read it to you your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me your throne will be established forever this covenant's talked about in Psalm 89 I have made a covenant with my chosen one I have sworn to David my servant I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. Now let me just close the message with this. If you know anything about David, and if you don't, I'll teach you in a few weeks. But if you know anything about David, David made some humongous mistakes. Most of you who've read the Bible already know that he had an adulterous affair. We already know that he conspired to hide his sins. We already know that he was involved with some really shady dealings. But listen to what I'm going to say now. In the end, he loved God so much. Now, if you're struggling with that, you just look inward. If you're struggling and you're judging David now and say, well, how can he have a heart for God and do bad things? The same way you can. Same way you and I do. And it's not the bad things that define David. You know what defined David? It was the heart for God that defined David. Many of you, your sin is just in your mind 
owning you. And you're defining yourself by the mistakes you've made and by the sins you've committed. And you're thinking there's no way forward for me or I keep cycling back to this thing in my life. That's not what defines you. What defines you is do you have a heart for God? The sins are forgivable. David made some whoppers, man. I mean, he committed some huge sins. But here's the deal. Listen, he had a heart for God. And because he had a heart for God, his heart for God always led him to get on his knees and repent and ask forgiveness for his sins. A people who have a heart for God. That's what God's always wanted from Genesis opening pages. All God has ever wanted from you humans is to have a people who have a heart for God. God wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants your heart. You say, yeah, but my mistakes, he's going to deal with that. He's going to make provision for that. He understands who you are. He understands the sinful nature we have. And he's going to make provision to overcome that. What God wants from you this morning is your heart. I, I'm always concerned, having grown up in the tradition of church, I'm always concerned that in the church it seems that we have made some sins unforgivable in the Christian community. And I don't understand that. It's like your secret sins of pride and jealousy and greed, nobody knows about those and they're never talked about. Let someone commit adultery or, 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 or have a, a, a child born out of wedlock and suddenly the church is ready to just, just stone them, tar and feather them and run them out of the Christian community for the rest of their life. What's broken about that, man? Sins are forgivable. Now, that's not a license to say, hey, we can do whatever we want to do. No, you're, you're taking grace and you're misusing it, if that's your understanding. But what I'm saying to you this morning is you're not defined by your past mistakes. You're not defined by your past sins. If you have a heart to pursue God, God will forgive your sins. Now, let me just ask you a question. Which sins? Which sins? All of them. And to say anything else is to say that the blood of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross was not enough for some of your sins. The sacrifice of Christ's life, the giving of himself for you, covers all of your sin. Past, present, future. Don't abuse it. Don't abuse grace. But that's what he did for you. It's like we're in a covenant again. Do you see what's happening? I'm going to do this for you, and I want you to have a heart for me. That's the covenant we're going to enter into in the New Testament. Will you be my people? And you may say, well, yeah, but I've got some baggage. I have committed some sins. God knows that. He's going to forgive your sins. You're not defined by that. What he wants to know is, well, I have your heart. God knows you're not perfect. There is no expectation of perfection in Christianity at least not at Cornerstone. There is no expectation of perfection here. What God wants is not your perfect record. What God wants is your whole heart. If you'll give Him your whole heart, everything else is going to take care of itself. God pursues us and He engages us in a relationship despite our mistakes. His sacrifice on the cross covers every one of our human failures and the blood of Christ has the power to cleanse us of all of our sins God is concerned more with your heart than he is with your mistakes the people I've been telling you about they're a train wreck ladies and gentlemen and they're called the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11 I think you can take the baton and take it to a whole new level if you wanted to. You say, well, how would I do that? I don't have any people to deliver. No, have a heart for God. That's all we're talking about. And say to God, here I am. Say to God, I want to renew my vows with you. Say to God, all I am. You know what we do in a wedding? See, repeat after me, Letty. To Jeff, not to me. <laughs> Jeff, I love you. You know, Jeff, all I have is yours. I give my... That's what we do in a wedding. All I, all I am is yours and all I have is yours and I give myself to you. We're entering 
into a covenant. Here's the question I want to ask you this morning. I'm not asking if you always do right. What I'm asking you this morning is, do you want to do right? Do you have a heart for God? Do you want to be on mission? Do you want to be his people? Because what God wants is that. He wants your heart, not your perfection. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want to make this next couple of minutes nothing more than a covenant renewal moment. I don't know posture-wise and location-wise what's best for you. Maybe you need to come for a moment and just get on your knees before the Lord at the altar. I feel like it has a lot of significance if you do that. It helps you. And just kneel before God. Five minutes out of the first day of the week. Just kneel here before God for a couple of moments and say, God, I need to renew some things with you this morning. Say the words to him. Whatever those words need to be. I love you. Maybe I haven't told you lately that I'm all in. God, here am I. I'm your people. Maybe we use this moment as a time to say, God, I've made a bunch of mistakes and I need to ask your forgiveness. There's some stuff that's piled up between us and I'm sorry. I do have a heart for you like David and I will ask for forgiveness. John reminds us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There are some guarantees in this life and one guarantee is that God's always going to love you. Another guarantee is that if you ask for forgiveness, God's always going to forgive you. Another guarantee is that if you have a heart for God, He will honor that. You are His people. Just renew your covenant with Him this morning. Whatever words you need to say, these are renewing their covenants maybe you've arrived at this service and you don't know the Lord as your Savior you're just here seeking trying to figure out what it's all about what you're supposed to be doing and you've never formally entered into a relationship with Christ all of that scary stuff in the Old Testament that sacrifice and shedding of blood and sprinkling all of that has already been done on the cross of Jesus Christ to enter into a relationship with Christ this morning is done by faith which means you're going to put your trust and put your belief in Jesus Christ that's done simply by asking, calling Paul said in the book of Romans for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved the prophet said call upon him while he's near while he may be found, while your heart's tender this morning, call upon Jesus Christ and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, I want you to pray with me right now. Dear Jesus, I confess to you that I'm a sinner and I believe you are the Son of God, the Savior of the world, just as the Bible said you are. And I believe you came to this earth and lived a perfect life and gave yourself on the cross to die in my place. I'm the sinner that deserves the wrath of God, but you took my place. And I believe you were buried and rose again to be my Savior. And I ask you this morning to please forgive me of my sins. Wash me and cleanse me. And Lord, may your sacrifice be applied to my life. And I believe it is sufficient 
for the forgiveness of my sins. Thank you for forgiving me. Now fill me with your Holy Spirit. And for the rest of my life, I'm going to have a heart for you and be your people. This is the covenant I want to make with you this morning. Be the Lord and King of my life, and I will be your people. This is my prayer in Jesus' name.